We are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, so if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is just a, a fantastic book. For one of the reasons that I decided that it'd be a good book to go through is that like few books of the New Testament, Ephesians has a very specific, uh, it really teases out the theology of the church, uh, what the nature and makeup of the church is like. And so the book of Ephesians is great for any church's self-understanding of who they are. Uh, And so as I thought about what's the best way to start my pastoral ministry here, I thought we really want to get through what Paul says to these Ephesian Christians. So, as, uh, uh, so not to lose the forest for the trees, as can often happen when you're studying a book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we do here at Christ Community Church, I wanted to take a little bit of a step back because we've been out of Ephesians for the last couple of weeks due to Passion Week and get a sense of our bearings again before we dive right back into the book. Now, you know, today it is popular in, in, in theological circles to talk about what's called the indicative, imperative reality of the Christian faith. Now, unless you're an English teacher or you know your grammar very much, you know what that means. For the rest of us, let me just explain that briefly. Indicatives, imperatives, you're going to find this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, So it's important that we talk a little bit about this. Basically, these are verbs. You might remember those from English class. An indicative verb is a verb that communicates a state of being, uh, of what is a fact. An imperative verb is a command, what ought to be, what you should do. So an indicative describes the current situation. Uh, An imperative commands or prescribes for a different kind of situation or a continuing of that circumstance. Paul is always rooting imperative commands to love, obey, serve, rejoice, forgive. He's always rooting them these imperative verbs, in indicative statements. You are in Christ. You are loved. You are empowered. You have been chosen by God. You see, put another way, a Christian does what a Christian does because they are Christians, not to become a Christian. Let me say that again. We do what we do because of what we are, We don't do the things we do to become what we already are. Does that make sense? So the reason Ephesians is a great example and a great book for us to go through, because this is a beautiful example of this exact dynamic of the indicative and the imperative. So the very first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul does nothing but talk about the character of and the calling of the church. So if you look at chapters 1 through 3, all Paul is doing is talking about what we are, what God has done for us, what, who we are. And then in chapters 4 and 6, after he's laid this great foundation, it is then and only then that Paul gets into what I call the conduct or the commands of the church. So chapters 1 through 3, this is your character. And then chapters 4 through 6, in light of what your character is, these are the commands that you should obey. To put it another way, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is speaking about our wealth in Christ before he gets to chapters 4 through 6 where he talks about our walk with Christ. So chapters 1 through 3, our wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, our walk with Christ. And our walk with Christ is based on the wealth we have in Christ. 
And it's very important to always get that format or that structure set in your mind. So what we have been doing since February, I think the middle of February, February 8th, 15th, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And I want to take a step back briefly and recap kind of the highlight reel, because sometimes we can study the scriptures, and especially when we take a break, we can get, we just get disconnected. How is this all coming together? And we hear a certain chunk and we go, okay, that's good. But keep in mind, the Spirit of God is going somewhere. He has an intention here. And Paul is writing, especially in Paul's writings in the New Testament, Paul was a brilliant uh, pastor, theologian, scholar, and he was always making arguments. Now, I don't mean arguments like, you know, you fight, you get mad, you, you argue with each other. But I mean a reasoned disputation with, an, with a premise and a conclusion, uh, an argument. And so through the books that Paul's writing by the inspiration of the Spirit, he's making a case, making an argument. And every now and again, it's helpful to step back and say, okay, what is the argument being made? How does this that I'm reading now fit into that? So I have on the screen behind me, uh, basically the verses, the, 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 the section divisions of sermons that we have worked through together. So Paul starts this amazing book in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, wanting the Ephesian believers to know that their salvation, far from a mistake or some kind of accident, was a, was a plan of the triune God in which all three persons of the Godhead took a valuable and critical role. The Father electing the people from before the foundations of the earth, choosing His people. The Son, in, in agreement with that plan, redeeming those people. And then the Spirit, after the Son redeeming His people, then sealing those people to be God's. And then in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, based on that reality that Paul was writing to these people whom the whole God had elected, redeemed, and sealed, he's praying now for them that they have the ability to grasp the purposes, the plans, and the promises of God for them. And, and, and actually, another if you want another P in there, he's talking about the great power of God as evidence in the fact that Jesus was raised from the grave. And then in chapter 2, after laying the solid foundation, he takes a little bit of a step back to remind them what exactly took place in their salvation. And you remember we, we talked about Martin Luther, the great reformer, who defines sin in two words. And he says, sin makes us in curvatus in se, curved in on ourselves. And we said a working definition of sin is that we at our, at our core are self centered. And Paul says, when the, when the triune God saved humanity, the people that he had chose, one of the greatest things that happened is we went from this radical self-centeredness to this more, even more radical God-centeredness. That the very, the furniture of our universe, of our lives, had been radically rearranged, and it was no longer about us looking at us, but we realized we were made for something else. And so he reminds them what they were saved from, what they were saved through, and what they were saved for. And that ended verses 1 through 10. Then Paul wrote, rolled on into verses 11 through 18, wanting these people to remember their past condition. And remember it was, and we'll talk a little bit about this today in today's message, is that they were separated, they were alienated, they were hostile, they were, in a sense, homeless kind of wandering, and we talked a little bit about that, that experience of that, that without God in our lives, because we were made for God to be in our lives, 
we human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, are created to be worshiping beings. And so we are going to make our lives revolve around something. And either we're going to do, make our lives revolve around the life-giving God and benefit from that, or our lives are going to revolve around lesser gods, and we are going to be, suffer the consequence of that. We do it all the time. Just as a brief illustration, on my drive here today, this morning, there was this, I mean, a massive, one of these massive trucks. It was like, how do you turn without tipping over? It was this huge, and there was this family in it. It looked like they were going to go to a baseball game, and all over the back was plastered in blue and, and white, which I think are the colors of my local high school, so maybe they were there, on their way there, OC Pride, right? Orange County Pride. And yeah, it was just a fun thing they drove by, but I thought, how interesting that no matter who we are, we have got to identify with something. We have got to be invested in something. My, my value is meant to be taken from something. So here's this big old truck with OC pride plastered all over it. And it just reminded me that as human beings, we are constantly defining ourselves by the world around us. That's just the way we are. And Paul says, before Christ, your past condition, you were grabbing everything from this world to build up your self-understanding, whatever it's going to be. But we were created to build up our self-understanding from God, but because we rejected him, we now try to build our self-understanding from the things of this world. And the things of this world never last or satisfy. So then he also says in in verses 11 through 18, now recall your present redemption, that you were brought near in Christ, that you were brought into one new people, and we even use the term that Paul alluded to, this new man, a new humanity in Christ. We are no longer people that, that desperately grab for our identity from the things of this world that are going to, you know, fall apart and, and get old and decay and, and betray us. We are now regathering our identity as the new humanity that God intended humans to always be. And it wasn't, we talked about the Jew and the Gentiles. It's not based on you adhering to the law. So the religious people, it's not about being religious. And we talked about, it's not about the irreligious people who are living free in whatever kind of life they want, but that everyone comes to God through Christ. We all come through him, and there's no room for boasting in that. And that's what brings us to where we're at. But, but before we land there, let me just finish this up. And in chapter 3, what Paul does is that he puts everything on the table and talks about and reveals what he calls the mystery of the ages, the church. That because there's this new relationship with God, a new relationship with one another, there's this new humanity, this new people called the church. And he spends entire chapter three talking about that. And then and only then, when he spent all this time laying this foundation, does he jump into chapters four, five, and six which literally are marked by the word walk. We talked a little bit about that, that that defines the way you live your life. Only then, after for us, seven weeks of talking about who we are in Christ, as taught to us through Ephesians, do we even begin to talk about what we should be doing. And that's really important. That's that indicative imperative structure, that what we are must always be the engine, the fuel that fuels what we do, right? That's just the bottom line kind of reality that what we are should shape what we do. We cannot shape who we are by the things we do, but really those things must flow from our hearts. And you you can apply this principle uh, in a number of ways. Just because you wear athletic clothes and drink sports drinks doesn't make you an athlete, does it? 
Just because you carry a surfboard and you hang out at the beach early in the morning doesn't make you a surfer, does it? No, it's not the things on the outside, but it's actually what's on the inside, that mental attitude, that self-understanding, those daily habits that result in the behaviors that we associate with, in this case, a surfer or an athlete. That's that indicative, who am I, gives shape to the imperative, what I do. And the whole New Testament is filled with this kind of structure. Let me put it to you this way. And if I'm going quick, that's because this isn't even really this morning's sermon. This is just getting us back up to speed after being done for two, out of Ephesians for two weeks. Let me put it this way. You can't live the Christian life until first you have the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life until you first have the Christian life. Paul, in the book of Galatians, actually the, very close to what Ken just quoted to us, Galatians 2.20 Paul would say it this way, the life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. I know that kind of sounds like those weird one-hand clapping mystical things, but, but it's very true. The life of Christ is just impossible without first the life of Christ making it possible. Does that make sense? To put it in a way that if you're not a Christian, and this sounds just, where do you get Galatians, what is that? Being precedes doing. We would put it that way. Being precedes doing. And that's what Paul has been trying to lay the foundation for from chapter 1, chapter 2, and then again through chapter 3. Because we don't want to be a people that just do without being. That kind of leads to a moralism. That that will lead to self-righteousness. If we forget what great debts we've been forgiven and we start living lives fueled by just kind of a morality and we're successful at it, that will breed self-righteousness, right? But if we always remember that we were forgiven a debt we could never repay and given riches we don't deserve, that always leads to profound humility. And so we don't want to just jump into, okay, what does the Scripture say we got to do? What does the Bible say I have to do? We want to marinate, and I like that expression. We want to marinate in what I am in Christ, And that is someone who has been chosen from the foundations of time because the triune God had elected me, redeemed me, and sealed me. And that being prayed for that I would comprehend that God's purposes, plans, and promises for my life far exceed my own. And to be broken out of that radical self-centeredness, to have my eyes wide open to the world around us, right? One of the problems with sin is that we take the size of our life and we reduce it to the size of our life. And that's not how God created his humans to live. He created us to live with these huge vistas of what he plans. But unless we are living in that, unless that is our foundation, then every time challenges come, we get shaken, right? Every time the demands of the gospel get applied to us, we buckle. And so we need to spend the time recognizing who are we before we get into what we're called to do. And that's what Paul intends to do. And that's what we're, we're trying to do again this morning and for the next couple of weeks as we finish off Ephesians 3. That being said, let me pray and we'll begin our study of our passage. Lord, thank you that you understand what is so good for us. So often we want to jump into doing and action because we are a people of action. That's That's part of the American way. Lord, thank you that you took the time 
and you see, and we have it seen modeled before us in Ephesians, that it's so important to just realize who we are and what we are, what our calling is and our character before we rush headlong into the commands and the conduct. Father, help us to recognize and just enjoy that we have this tremendous wealth in Christ as you call us to walk with him. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, um, so that doesn't mean your sermon's going to go twice as long today. Just letting you know, we're going to end at the usual time. Tim read it for us, but I think it's such a wonderful passage. I want to read it again, verse 19 to 22 of Ephesians chapter 3. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Keep in mind, these are the same words Paul used in verse 12. I just want to show you that he is making this connection. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul uses that phrase again, you were not strangers, you were not no longer aliens, you were no longer foreigners. He says that twice because that was the experience that they had, and I think he captures that, especially in contrasting it with the metaphor of being included in a household. So let me ask, have any of you been foreigners? Have any of you been a foreigner? Yeah, and I don't mean going to vacation like New Hampshire or New Orleans where things are different, but I mean a genuine foreigner where they drove on, I was going to say the wrong side of the road, but they drove on the other side of the road. Uh, The language is not the language you're familiar with. Even the cultural uh, symbols are not the ones you're used to, right? It's a very disorienting experience, isn't it? I remember being in in, uh, Nairobi a few years ago, and I was the only one that even was similar to being white, because I'm actually brown, olive skinned, and it was just an odd experience. I remember as a young man, a teenager, uh, still a teenager, I was smuggling Bibles into communist China, and I got lost in Hong Kong. Uh, It was a night where the first week I was there, and some of the smugglers and I were having a dinner, and they said, you want to help us get back to your apartment? I said, I got it. I can find it. And I had no idea that I mean, Hong Kong is this huge metropolis like Manhattan, but in a language you can't understand and you can't read. And for four hours, I wandered around, and there was an odd experience. I'm never usually one to get lost, but feeling vulnerable, uh, lost, uh, and not feeling safe because you don't know who to trust. You can't read anything. You don't know what to believe until finally after four hours, I think it was two o'clock in the morning, and I don't know what a Chinese family is doing up at 2 a.m., but this wonderful Chinese family found this, you know, American lost and, found, and got, brought me back to my apartment. And it was just an amazing thing. But I'll never forget the experience of feeling disoriented, feeling completely out of place, and feeling like home was as far away as you could possibly imagine. Now, if you've ever been a foreigner and a foreigner who's been lost, you know that experience. Now contrast that, because Paul's using that concept, contrast that with home, right? Even talking to me, thinking about it, it brings a smile to my face. What's the biggest difference? What's the biggest difference when you're a foreigner and then when you're home? What's that? Comfortable, yes. What else? I heard somebody else over here. 
familiarity, yes. Home is where things are the way you like them, right? That things are set up and everything at home reminds you that you belong here, that this is your place. Home is where you understand life and you feel at home. And Paul is saying that you guys were no, you were once these foreigners, these strangers, before you understood Christ. But now in Christ, you are no longer these foreigners, these strangers. As a matter of fact, Paul uses three metaphors to show how close that they have been brought to Christ. You remember in, in earlier in chapter 2, he says, you were far off, you were away, now in Christ you've been brought near, and he uses three metaphors to show that. Now, if you've got your church got bulletin here, you can see that we have the outline for you. Uh, and I'm not going in a linear manner, because I don't think that was Paul's intent, but just as a way for you to organize the text, he uses these three metaphors, God's kingdom, God's family, and God's temple. Now, if you have an ESV uh, translation, verse, nine, verse 19 starts with, so then... If you have an NIV, it says, consequently. Verses 19 to 22, Paul is saying, he's concluding, he says, God has done all this radical thing. You are a new humanity in Christ. You've been brought near. As a result of that, you are now citizens in God's kingdom, members of his household, and stones in his temple. Notice that these metaphors are in increasing intensity in relationship with God. So I think Paul's thrust here is to remind these people who are far off now of how close you've been brought to the Heavenly Father. And every metaphor he uses increases in intensity. So the metaphor of a citizen, you, you are a subject in this king's uh, you know, kingdom, and that's great, but you know, chances are the king lives in a far-off castle, and you may get to see him once in your life right? The king feels a certain level of responsibility for you because you're one of his subjects. But you're not just a citizen of the kingdom. You are a family member. So, so now the king or the, the dad, your dad, lives in the same house with you, and you're interacting him, with him every day. And it's not just responsibility that he feels. There is a familial love that he has for you. So if if it's not enough to just be a citizen in the kingdom or a member of the family, he concludes, he says, look, you are actually a stone cemented together in the temple that God himself is dwelling in it. See, you notice this intensity of connection with God. You're not just a citizen. You're not just a family member. You're an actual stone that he dwells in this temple. But notice also that those metaphors not only show an intensity in our relationship with God, did you notice that they're also showing an intensity in our relationship with one another? So, as a citizen, we might live within miles of each other, but as a family member, I'm living within feet of each other. We're living within feet of each other. As stones, what? We are cemented together. What's Paul's point in every one of these metaphors? An increasing intensity of relationship, not only with the Heavenly Father, but with one another. So here's the question that I, I, I want to drive the rest of our time this morning. Do these, how do you square these metaphors with kind of a casual, I go to church on Sunday, but that's about it kind of attendance? How do they square? I'm not afraid of silence. I've taught many times. They don't square. Who was that? 
I heard it. Richard or Michael. It doesn't line up. Exactly right. That's Paul's point. These metaphors are pointing to the fact that as this new humanity brought together, reconciled with God, brought into relationship, and brought into relationship with one another, he throws on three metaphors to show that, listen, now uh, their, their format, their culture was a little bit different, but the point being is that casual, I come to church on Sunday morning, does not line up with the redeemed life of a Christian. It's something so much deeper and more significant. So the question is then, how deep does it go? So here's your first point. It goes deep enough to where there is good accountability. Now, how do you know you have good accountability? There's transparency. In a family, is there faking it in the family? Nope. There's no faking it in a family. Why? Because they know you so well. They know you intimately. Or when you have good, good friendships, are there faking? Can you fake it with people who really know you? No. It's because they know who you are. You know, it always amazes me, my wife, Lori, knows what I'm actually thinking. She can be sitting there, we can be sitting there, and she'll say, so what are you thinking? And I say, well, how do you, well, you know, it's not that I'm not thinking, but I say, how do you know I'm thinking? She says, well, your temple's kind of bulb back and forth, and you look like you're chewing on something. <laughs> my wife knows me, and that's a beautiful thing. But, it, but it's also one of those things where it can kind of get kind of scary when it gets outside your family that someone can know you that well. But that's what good accountability is, that transparency where there's no faking it. And some of you have this experience. You're in a small group with some guys or some women, and they can tell by the tone of your voice or the look on your face or the things you say or the things you don't say if you're doing well or not. You ever had that experience? They can tell how you're doing. I had a friend once. He was one of my best friends, and he could tell tell by my laugh if it was a genuine laugh or I was faking it. I was just kind of, ha-ha, kind of keeping someone going. He could always tell. No matter how hard I tried to to work on the fake laugh, Frank could always figure it out because he knew me. That's the kind of accountability that the kind of these metaphors are pushing us towards, the kind of knowledge of one another where there's this kind of transparency where we know one another. Now, obviously, what that requires is a willingness to be known at that level and a willingness to know other people at that level. See, that's where kind of casual Sunday morning church attendance works in our favor because this is casual Sunday morning church attendance. I was once at a pastor at a church. When we exceeded a certain number, I think it was about 800, we realized now people used to come to our church because we were a, a family. You could feel that, and we loved it. But we realized people were now starting to come to our church because you could be anonymous. You could come in and go out. The size of our church would breed an anonymity that people found attractive. And that was disheartening as a pastor. We want to create a culture where we're willing to be known and willing to know. And this is why I'm a huge advocate of being involved in a local church. Uh, Because it's so easy to fake it on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It's so easy when I just got to get by for 90 minutes that you don't know what's really going on in my life. But when you become more involved in the life of a church, and this is not a pitch for you to get more involved in this church if you're visiting or you're from another church, but it is a, a, a plea from a pastor's heart that if you're part of this church to get involved, and here's why. It's not because we actually need the help in volunteering, although we do, but really it's for your benefit. Here's what I mean. I can fake it on Sunday morning. You can fake it on Sunday morning. 
But it gets harder with more interaction, right? So if I'm in the uh, same ministry with you on a Wednesday night, now you're seeing me Wednesday night as well as Sunday morning. And if it happens to be the case I'm also in the same growth group as you, now you're seeing me Tuesday mornings talking about Sunday sermon. So you see me Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. You're starting to get my point here. And if we're really involved, your kids might know my kids, or my wife might know your wife, or my husband, your, you know, that, all these interconnections begin to take place. What's happening? I'm getting less and less room to hide here. And more and more areas where you can start to see, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? You can start connecting the dots. And that's a good thing because one of the things that sin can do in our lives is it can deceive. And guess who's the first person that gets deceived? Yep, everyone's pointing, right? That's exactly right. And so when I'm with other people and I've deceived myself, if I have good accountability, I'm going to have some men in my life who say, I don't think you're seeing this clearly. And that's what we want. When I was pastoring in the Midwest, I had this unusual experience that there were all these kind of great churches in our community. And what I found was I had people come into our church on Sunday mornings, and then I'd have them go to a different midweek Bible study at another church, and then their kids would go to another youth group on a Friday night, and then they'd go to another Saturday night service for the music. You know what was happening here? That I had a group of people that were known everywhere, but they were known nowhere. So the, the thing that made it difficult was that they were so involved in church activities, but they didn't realize that they were actually known everywhere in the community, but because everyone got a surface level, they were known nowhere because everyone got a surface level. And so I started to change that and started to ask people. And I, I would actually have young men and women ask me to be discipled, and I would say no. I said, you need to be discipled by somebody in your church. Not because I didn't want to disciple them, but because I didn't want to see a slice and someone else another slice and yet another person another slice and never really see them as a whole. And so we want to develop the kind of relationships in this local church where there's this kind of accountability that leads to a transparency because you know one another. But what that implies is we have to be a safe place for people to be willing to open up and share. And that can be a scary experience, can't it? But have you ever had the experience where somebody shared with you really hard stuff? What, you, what is the response that happened? What's, what's elicited in your heart towards that person? What's that? Empathy, yes. Empathy, what else? Compassion, is that you, Heather? Yes. Anything else? Empathy, compassion, what happens with me is I've, this, the, the, the respect of this person in my eyes goes up because it is so easy to fake like you're doing well than to be real with, I'm struggling in this way. And when I see that kind of genuine, authentic, heroic faith trying to work through difficulty, I never think, oh, I thought you were better. <laughs> never, right? None of us do. We actually go, oh, this is someone that I can open up to. And we all want that, but it's also scary to do. Yeah, we do it in our growth groups. Hopefully that's happening in growth groups, but we want that to be the culture, that the DNA that permeates our church. Because why? We get it. On the foot of the, the ground before the cross, we all stand on level ground, right? So we need that. So in order to have that kind of accountability and transparency, it, it implies a vulnerability and a willingness to be safe. And be a safe place. So, so, how far do we go with it? Until there's good accountability. How far? Until there's a shared sense of community and responsibility. 
Now, you know you're getting closer to the point of these metaphors when you're feeling a sense of responsibility for what's going on at this church because you're growing in your sense of community for what's going on at this church. I love showing up on Sunday mornings and meeting people who are engaged at this church. Now, by that, I don't mean they're raising their hands in the worship service or, or listening attentively, although that's helpful. But I love meeting people that I know they're here not just to engage and worship and, and, and to benefit, but they're here to serve, right? They're here to engage you. They're here. Everything they're doing is, this is like a, a participant sport for them. If they, if they had their way, they'd wear a crash helmet in the service because they know they're engaging God and they're engaging other people. I love that dynamic. That when I show up here, there are people willing to serve and engage God and other people well. I love that. I, I just joked with Nicole this morning. I said, do you actually have to be a really pregnant woman to be one of our greeters? The fact that she's so, well, not so pregnant. You are pregnant or you're not pregnant. She's pregnant. And then we have um, Aaron. Aaron's pregnant. And they could easily say, well, you know, I'm going to take it easy because I'm pregnant here. I'm making a liver right now. What are you doing? So I'm going to sit down. They don't do that. They say, I want people walking this campus to feel like they're wanted here because that's how they want to feel, right? So they're out there serving. I remember on Wednesday night, a couple months ago, when I was still candidating to become the senior pastor, I was out at Starbucks on Wednesday night, and I recognized Ramin walk in. And he was there in his dress slacks, a dress shirt, and a tie. And he had just come from the office, and instead of going home because he put in a long day, he shows up on this campus on Wednesday night to engage these young men in our youth ministry and point them to Christ, right? And, and there's other people. There are countless people on this campus doing that every week. I love listening in on your conversations. Don't get creeped out, but I do kind of listen in, and I'm always hearing, how can I pray for you? How is this need being met? What can I do? It's getting done. Can I just say, as a pastor, I know a lot of pastors burn out because they feel the weight of an entire congregation's pastoral needs. I don't feel that here. Now, you might say, well, wait, wait till you move into the neighborhood. Uh, but, but the point is, <laughs> when I come on this campus, I hear people getting it done, caring for each other, carrying that weight. They feel the sense of responsibility because they have grown in their sense of community for each other here. And I want to read something from um, uh, C.S. Lewis. He says this, uh, he has this book called The Four Loves. Anybody ever read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis? Okay. It's interesting because in this book, he's talking about friendship. And, and C.S. Lewis, also known called Jack by his close friends, was co-best friends with another man named Charles and another man named Roland, or Ronald, excuse me. And when Charles passed away, C.S. Lewis thought that he and Ronald now would be even better friends uh, we, we call them BFFs these days, that they would get even tighter because Charles was now gone. There wasn't the three of them. He found actually the opposite to be true. He didn't realize, I'm going to read his words for you himself, itself, how much the relationship they shared was dependent upon each of them being part of the relationship. This is what he writes. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. 
Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. What a true statement. You cannot love Jesus fully by yourself. According to what Lewis is writing here. You need all the other lives of Christians around you that beautifully display in in different ways, but in different degrees and situations, the character of Christ that you have personally not seen and known. This is why Christianity is corporate. This is why religion can never be merely a private affair because none of us is large enough to bring out the character of, of, of just another person, let alone the character of Christ. I, elders of this church, the pastors of this church, need this church to help us love Jesus more. You need the people in this church to help you love Jesus more as well. It cannot be just me and Jesus alone doing my own thing. Because each of you will bring out the character and qualities of Jesus' immense and amazing character in ways that my life won't. And it happens all the time if we are willing, again, if we are willing to engage and be known and let others know us. That's a profound statement that Lewis says. You see, we help each other grow into something much more significant than the sum of our parts, don't we? We together as a whole is something much more significant than the collection of our individual lives. In ancient Greece, Um, Greece was separated by what was called city-states. So you had Thessalonica, Athens, Sparta. Um, And Sparta was known as the city-state that was unconquerable in battle. They were famed for the uh, Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans fought off of the 10,000s of Xerxes' immortals. Um, Actually, there were other Greek soldiers there, but it was the 300 Spartans that made the day. An emissary was sent to Sparta to examine the famous walls of Sparta that kept them so, uh, that defended them. And the emissary was surprised that there were no walls around Sparta at all. Now, every city-state had walls. That's what you did in ancient culture, or else you'd be invaded. And so the emissary went to King Leonidas and said, King Leonidas, I've heard all about these famous walls of Sparta. I don't see a single wall here. How are you defending yourselves? Your borders are, are you can get invaded. What, what do you do? And Leonidas took the emissary on a field where the Spartans were training. He says, you see these men? You see that Spartan there? You see that Spartan there? He says, yes, I see them. He says, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. I love that the fact that Paul uses the metaphor of of us being bricks in a temple being built together. The picture it shows that if I'm a brick right here, I am resting on all the bricks below me, but I'm simultaneously supporting all the bricks above me. That's the idea of the temple. That nobody is just a brick in a pile on the side. That everyone has a role. Everyone has a place. 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You know, often, if you've been in a church a while, you've probably heard something, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you, your body, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is what it says. Here's something pretty significant, and this might radically change your whole understanding of the New Testament, or at least the way you read it. Do you realize when Paul's saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, just as he's talking here in Ephesians chapter 2 about you being the temple, all these things, do you realize that he's not using the, the uh, singular 
singular pronoun, the third person pronoun. Did I get that right? Singular third person pronoun, right, you. He's using the plural third person pronoun. What that means is, anybody from the South? Any Southerners here? What's the plural for you? Y'all. They're genius, right? They're genius because they can clearly say if I'm talking to you or y'all. In English, the way we speak in the rest of the world, other than the South, we don't have that advantage. We just say what? You. So the problem, the trick can be is we can read when Paul's saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you think, hey, that's talking about me. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When he is saying you, more often than not, in the New Testament, especially when Paul is saying you, he's not saying you, third person, singular, individual Christian. He's saying second, no, third person, second. My wife's a grammar teacher, so he needs to say, okay, so second person, thank you. He's saying, oh yeah, it would have been he or they, that's right, thank you, honey. So he's not saying, uh, not going to make it into the podcast, second person singular, he's saying second person plural, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means wedded into our Christian faith is this fundamental corporate understanding that it is a we that's doing this. And when we gather and when we scatter, it is a we that is doing it. And Paul is saying this new humanity that has been created, that has been brought so close, yes, there are individual features and components of it. I don't want to downplay that. But in our culture, I think that the, 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 the emphasis has been too much on the individual and not on the reality that we are a we. And we do things together. And your holiness, your growth, just as your sufferings and your struggles and difficulties impact us all. And we cannot give in to the idea that is popular in a consumeristic, individualistic society that I show up on church once and I've done my thing. Not only are you suffering, but we suffer. And Paul says, I want to give you metaphors that you cannot avoid. That you are citizens, you are family members, you're the very stones cemented together. And together you are a dwelling place for the house of, the dwelling place of God. And there's much more to be said on that, and we will get into that in chapter 3 next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's vivid use of these metaphors. As we all can connect to them in some way, as we all are citizens of the U.S., we all are part of families. And Lord, that you call us to be living stones with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, with Jesus Christ being the stone that sets all the angles and all the elevations, that Jesus Christ is the stone by which every other stone is fitted and snugly made a part of the building. Lord, I pray that each one of us here would would contribute joyfully, willingly of the ways you have gifted them so that your temple here, where it's represented by Christ Community Church, would be one that brings glory and honor to your name and good to your people, the people who are in it, the people who are it, and the people who will come. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.